You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our Father, because it is Christ alone that gives us the ability to come before you, listen to your word, hear it, and heed it, and grow, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to make much of Jesus in such a way that you expose our need for him and that you give him to us. Amen. You may be seated. We're in our third week as we follow the lectionary through the wonderful epistle of 1 John. If you've got your Bibles, please open them to 1 John 3, starting with verse 16, or certainly follow along in your bulletins. I want to follow the contours of this passage with the hopes that we hear three things from God today. First, what laying down our lives really means. Second, an insight on the nature of loneliness and conflict in Christian community. And third, the shock of the gospel. So first, let's listen to the text to understand what laying down our lives means. My gym has been on an 80s and 90s kick lately, and I recently heard Hathaway's famous question over the loudspeakers. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No mo. Did you like that last part? I had two reactions. The first was kind of involuntary. What every 90s SNL fan knows well, you need to start moving your head like this to the beat, right? And the second reaction I had was this thought. It's a softball from God. I'm preaching the classic passage in the scripture in a few weeks on the definition of love. What is love, Hathaway asks. And John the Apostle says, yo, I got you, homie. You don't even need to write your song. Already answered it like 2,000 years ago. John says in verse 16, By this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. So according to John, this is the quintessential definition of love. Not just Christian love, not just God's love, but love, period. Every Christian should know that according to God, The dictionary definition of love isn't some generic feeling of compassion or benevolence, some state of positivity or attraction. Love, as big and broad as it is, gets defined by God in a concrete and specific way. Love is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, on a cross, sacrificing his life for undeserving people like you and like me. Love equals Christ crucified. Imagine if that were our starting place for all other conversations about love in the world, whether love between a husband and wife, or love between friends, or love between a mother and a son, or love between a leader and her followers. Imagine if love started with that kind of specificity instead of the blob-like tolerance of Oprah or the butterfly love of contestants on The Bachelor, or the bubblegum love of a Disney tween show, right? Imagine if Christians opted with saying, hey, if we're going to talk about love, the foundation, the starting place, isn't pop psychology or Hollywood, but Jesus on a cross. That would be an interesting conversation for some of us to take home to our friends or our families or our roommates or our small groups. What would it mean for the cross of Jesus to inform every other expression and definition of love in my life? I think that's what John's arguing here, actually. 
But then John goes on to say that out of that cross is the power to do the same, to lay down one's life. John is just echoing the teaching of Jesus himself here, who said, Greater love hath no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. But what does laying down our lives really mean? I think sometimes we get stuck here with Hollywood, with dramatic acts of what we kind of call paying the ultimate sacrifice. We often listen to passages like these and marvel at individuals who can, in a flash of bravery, throw themselves on a grenade or jump in front of a car and push someone else out of the way or die on a birthing table to give life to their baby or face martyrdom rather than renounce the faith. And we should marvel. I mean, these are extreme instances of humanity at its best, of self-sacrifice at its clearest. So forgive me in what I'm about to say. I don't mean to downplay these things, but in a way, those flashes of bravery are, at least from one perspective, easier than the daily self-sacrifice required for mutual relationships. The daily self-sacrifice required to be a deep, not a superficial member of Christ's church, or the daily self-sacrifice required to actually remain married and die to your own desires for the sake of your spouse, or the daily self-sacrifice required to be single and not give in either to despair or recklessness or paralyzing self-pity, but to live a purposeful life to the glory of God and to wake up the next day and simply say, Lord, here am I. Use me. The daily death of saying, I want to spend less time thinking about myself and what I need and what I want and more time laying myself down for others and what they need and what they want. It's much harder to do any of that because it's never final. You die, but then you go on living. It requires new death and new martyrdom, a new grenade every day. Who has that kind of stamina? I mean, I don't. But this is the countercultural call that John is talking about. Culture doesn't work this way, though. Culture tells you to spend more time on self-focus, Self-reflection, self-protection, self, self, self. Culture is telling us that there's a lot that we should have, that we're entitled to. And Jesus says, in me, you actually have all you need. You don't need to extract it from the others or extract it from the world. John actually gives us an example of this. Culture tells us that the money we earn is our money. I've earned it. It's mine. My money is for me. And Jesus tells us the money that you've earned by your sweat and work or even the sweat and work of your family inherited to you is ultimately a gift from me. Your wealth is my resources on loan to you. On loan to you. Which is why John says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his hearts against him, how does God's love abide in him? In other words, God has provided for your spiritual riches and your physical riches for the purpose of giving it away. Your money, it's for your neighbor. Your spiritual gifts, they're for your neighbor, your brothers and sisters. This means that personal ministry that often in churches like ours gets labeled mission and outreach is actually not a department it's a gospel-born lifestyle of every Christian. 
You see someone in need, the instinct of love that looks like the cross of Christ says, what I have, I lay down for you. Now, imagine the implications for this kind of love for the body life of the church. They're vast. This means that when we're part of a church, we think less like consumers. What can I get? What do I want and need? And more like people willing to die. Suddenly, we're encouraged to think about what it looks like to explore a bunch of micro laying downs, a bunch of daily laying downs available to us. How about this one? Laying down of our politics or laying down the need to be right or to correct everyone else so that we can truly hear our sister right in front of us crying to be heard. I was praying to see this for my Christian brothers and sisters on the left and the right this week in response to the George Floyd verdict, laying it down, listening, humility. Or how about laying down our time? Oh, that's the hardest thing to give, to set down my phone with the people I'm in the room with and say, I'm here for you, you who are right in front of me, you get my time. Or laying down of our preferences when it comes to worship styles and practices, right? I once served a church where Christians were bickering and arguing about musical preference and which style of worship honored God more. The pastor present had the wisdom to say, don't you all realize that you're coming at it from the wrong angle altogether? You're coming at it as consumers. You're coming at it for what's in it for you. You're coming at it to get yours, to protect yours, to preserve yours. In other words, you're thinking about me. The pastor said with great compassion, the mature church is the church not where everyone gets what they want. The mature church is the church where everyone's dying a little. Whoa, that hit me like a ton of bricks. Lord, have mercy on me. So that's the first point. That's what laying down our lives means. And maybe the Holy Spirit's identifying something to you in your heart right now. Listen to that. Pray about that. Go to the cross with that. Go to God's love with that. Second, this text gives us an insight into the nature of loneliness and conflict and Christian community. The text says in verses 19 to 20, We shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, and there's something worth stopping at right there. The Bible elsewhere and here teaches us something about the nature of the human heart when left alone to itself. The human heart can never ultimately offer itself a good word. Did you hear that? The human heart left to itself always ends up condemning itself. Isn't this the case that you and I always have our darkest thoughts when we're alone? You know, when we're going to bed at night and you finally turned off all your entertainment devices and you're left with your thoughts. That's why we keep them on, by the way, isn't it? It's way too hard to hear those voices. So one more Netflix show, so hopefully I'll fall asleep in the middle of it and I don't have to hear that voice. I don't know a single person who in that moment doesn't have a dark and condemning thought, whether it's rehearsing the actions of the day and the way you treated others, or whether it's thinking about your woundedness and brokenness and vulnerability, whether it's despair or the amount of life that you're kind of wasting on unimportant things. And that's the irony of all this positive self-talk business, isn't it? Have you ever tried positive self-talk? Have you ever tried to say things like, I am a good person, I am beautiful, I am smart, I am talented. 
Everyone I know who has tried this has told me when they're honest that it's always forced. And despite the good intentions, you can never quite believe it yourself. Why? Because the human heart left to itself is a self-condemnation machine. Now let's think about loneliness. What's so crushing about being alone? This is an insight I got from a theologian, Stephen Paulson, a few years ago. Being alone is deadly because the only voice that you can hear is the voice of your own heart. And to sit under that kind of condemnation with no relief, well, it'll kill you. I think about this, too, from the perspective of conflicts with others. I don't know about you, but whenever I enter into conflict with someone else, my mind and my heart go into what I call kind of dialogue overdrive. Whoever I have the problem with or whoever has a problem with me, I begin to have a bunch of imaginary dialogues with them in my head. I argue my case and I defend myself and I prove to them why they're wrong and why they need to step down and why they need to apologize. I have what seems like days, if not weeks, if not months worth of conversations with them, but it's all inside my own head. I haven't actually spoken with them. And the funny thing is, those conversations never ultimately go well. And they certainly never resolve the conflict. In fact, those in-my-head conversations only serve to alienate me from the actual person I hope to work through the conflict with. What's going on there? The condemnation of my own heart is simply clothed in the figment of the other person, a ghost, an invention of my own heart. I'm not actually talking to the other person at all. I'm talking to my own heart, shape-shifted into the person I'm in conflict with, and there's no resolution. Why? Because, and this is a crucial point that only the Bible can really teach us, the perpetual condemnation of the heart needs another voice. My heart condemnation can never solve its problem on its own. I need the voice of another, external to my heart, to come from the outside and to give me a different word. Loneliness can never be resolved in isolation. Conflict can never be resolved in one's heart alone. It takes another. In terms of conflict with another person, we need the other person to voice repentance or voice forgiveness. We can never do it ourselves. In terms of loneliness and our heart's condemnation, it takes an even stronger voice. And that leads us to our third point, the shock of the gospel. The gospel's good news, but I think for those of us that hear it a lot, we forget how shocking it is. This passage reminds us about how unexpected and amazing and downright explosive it is. Think with me about the nature of forgiving someone else. Someone has wronged you in a specific way, and you choose out of grace to forgive them. To say, I love you, I don't hold it against you, I choose to love you and draw near to you anyway. In many instances, except in forgiving the most deep and dark and egregious things, over time, this becomes fairly manageable. I I won't say forgiveness becomes easy, but it becomes manageable. Forgiveness is almost always responding to some kind of external action. You did something to me. You said something to me. And I can get to the place where I forgive you. But imagine how much harder forgiveness would be if you knew the heart of the other person. If you could see not only the action or the words that hurt you, but the full thought patterns and judgments 
of the other person. Because as we all know, when we wrong someone, it's usually just a little visible part of the iceberg of something far more massive, weighed down deep inside of us, under the surface. Think back to a moment when you hurt someone and had to go through the process of forgiveness and reconciliation with them. Haven't you had the thought, man, I know what I said was bad, but if you only knew the thoughts I had, I'm afraid you'd never forgive me, right? Because we all know what's in here, and it's infinitely more deep and dark than what ends up out there. So why do I say all this? Because the shocking news of God's forgiveness of you is that God is privy to every last bit of the universe of your heart. God not only sees your words and deeds like every other person, he sees the thoughts behind that. God sees the whole iceberg. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. God sees everything. God knows how twisted, deep, and dark your heart really is. And to make the situation even more complex, you might have knowledge of your heart more than people outside of you, but according to the Bible, even your own knowledge is skewed and partial. Jeremiah 17, 9, and you know what? Every Christian should memorize this one. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? You don't even know the half of what's wrong with your heart. You don't even know the half of the things that you actually need forgiveness for, that you actually have wrong, and that you actually need to repent of. And so hear verse 20 again and tell me if this isn't the most shocking and relieving thing that you've ever heard. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. You see, to get the full weight of this, we have to go back earlier to John's epistle. In John's epistle, Mike preached on this a few weeks ago, and Andrew read it and reiterated it last week. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. But if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Put it together. What does this mean? What could our confession look like? God, I've sinned, I've messed up, I've transgressed your law, but I don't even know the half of it. I confess not only what I do know, but I confess what I don't know, and I confess that this thing, my heart, is a total disaster and a total mess. And God says in response, I am greater. I see it all, past, present, and future. And in Christ, I forgive it all, past, present, and future. Brothers and sisters, I half think that if Christians lived in this kind of perpetual state of the awareness of our own hearts and the awareness of the shocking mercy of God, we actually would change the world. Because there's nothing like this out there. There's neither a humility so low nor grace so high that can be found out there. Nobody's willing to confess their hearts with this kind of hugeness. And nowhere do we find a forgiveness this gracious. That's good news, friends. There's nothing you could have done or felt or thought beyond the scope of God's forgiveness. If you've come here today feeling so broken, so beyond the hope of forgiveness, healing and restoration, 
Think again. Is your sin great? God's grace is greater. Are you running fast away from God? God's grace runs faster. Are you in a deep, dark place? Are you at the bottom of a pit? God's grace is like water. It always flows to the bottom. God is greater than your heart. And this takes us right back to the beginning. Jesus on the cross as the definition of love. And so we likewise go back to John's own words in chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to believe this. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.